Amen. Well, the scripture reading this morning is from Ruth chapter 4. We've been going through a series of sermons on the book of Ruth. And today is the final chapter. This is the conclusion to our series. And we're reading this final chapter of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. This is a reading of God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. And he took men, ten of the elders of the city, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who had come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me. That I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders, all the people, you are witnesses. This day I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were, with, were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrathi and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The woman in the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was uh, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadad. Amimadad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. It's a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks. Your word is life, your word is truth, your word is history. You have given us your word to give us instruction and to teach us in this way of love. So I pray, God, as we open up this final chapter of Ruth, pray that you would teach us your heart, you would teach us your truth, and you would fill your people with hope. 
as we see this scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last month and a half, I've been looking at the book of Ruth, and we've been going on a journey with uh, two women, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Naomi opens up this book as a very old and bitter woman. She's been through a lot of different things. She's very depressed. We said, we said she has all the clinical signs of depression in her. Uh, and it begins in that very dark place. I was listening to an interview with a uh, really well-esteemed Christian counselor. And he was being interviewed and he was asked the question, uh, how should we deal, how should we minister to people who are depressed? One of the first things that he said is that he started out with this idea that in many ways, people who are depressed, uh, in many ways, uh, we should we should expect more people to be depressed. When you kind of think about the world around us, how broken it is, how messed up things are, he said that depression in one sense is the is a right response to that. You know, if we took time uh, this morning just thinking about all the terrible things that are happening in our world, in our culture, in our country. I mean, part of the, the most human response might be depression. Uh, the most human right thing is to be depressed about all the terrible things in our, in our life, in our country, in our world. Uh, studies show that there is a rapid rise in depression and anxiety, especially amongst younger people. And all of that is spiking uh, especially amongst younger people. And many of us, we live in a bad news world. But what, we want, what we're seeing throughout this, this book is that Naomi goes from this very dark place and she steps into the light. She goes from emptiness to fullness. And as we close out this series, I want to talk about three things as we close out this series to give us hope. Three reasons to hope in a broken world, in a fallen world. Three things that could bring us life like it did to Naomi, resurrect our spirits. And those three things, as we look at it this morning, is God provides costly redemption. Secondly, God works good out of evil. And finally, love always wins. Those three things. The first thing is that God provides costly redemption. Uh, this Last month, we've been looking at the story of Naomi and Ruth. And if you just joined us for the first time, if you don't know their story, Naomi, at the beginning of the story, she's come back to Bethlehem and she's, she's lost everything. She's, lost, she's gone to Moab. She lost her husband there. She lost her two sons there. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy has befallen this woman. She comes back to Bethlehem basically ready to die, ready to go. And she is a shell of who she once was. And more than that, she's angry at God. She believed, God did this to me. God has cursed me. In Bethlehem, they have nothing, so uh, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, is with her. She decides she's going to go out and scavenge for food, basically. Scavenge for food. And as she scavenges for food, she happens, seems by chance, at the field of Boaz. She meets this tremendous man named Boaz, who provides for her, lavishes her with grain, blesses her, prays for her, invites her to the table. And as she comes back home, Ruth comes back home to Naomi and tells her about Boaz, she has some breaking news for Ruth. This is not just an ordinary man, Boaz. Boaz is a relative, and he could be our redeemer. Last week, we 
talked about the idea of a redeemer. A redeemer was someone like when you fell into poverty, you had to sell your land, your possessions. A redeemer was someone who could buy it back for you, a close relative who can buy it back for you. If you were a widow, you didn't have any children, in extreme cases, a redeemer could marry you and have, give you a child or an heir. And last week, we looked at this daring, this daring uh, plan of Ruth. Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night, dressed to the nines, looking good, looking sharp, looking lovely. And she wakes him up in the middle of the night and proposes to him. This woman proposes to a man. And uh, Boaz is taken aback by this, especially because it's midnight and someone's proposing to him right at his bed. He's taken back, but when he got, gets his wits with him, realizes what is happening, Boaz says, I, I'm flattered, Ruth, that you would have proposed to me. You chose me. And Boaz says, Ruth, you're a gem. You're a diamond in the rough. And I would love for you to be my wife. Uh, but there's a catch. You know, love is always complicated. If you're in a relationship, if you're married, love is always complicated. There's always another man, another woman in the picture. It's the wrong time. The in-laws don't like you. You know, love is complicated. Ruth tells us that the story of love is always complicated. This love story has a complication. There's another man in the picture. They do want to marry each other. There's another closer redeemer who has the right to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He has the first right. So Boaz says, let me be clear, Ruth. I want to marry you. I want to redeem Naomi, you and your mother-in-law. It has to wait till morning. So as chapter 4 comes into play, uh, Boaz heads to the town square, to the city gate. In ancient times, the city gate was a, a very important place. Everyone had to pass through the city gate to get to their field. It was a central place also because it was like city hall. Anytime something legal, a legal transaction took place, it had to take place at the city gate. It's the meeting spot. So Boaz, right in the morning, chapter 4, he goes to the city gate and he waits. He waits for that closest redeemer. In verse 1, it says that when he sees this man, he says, the ESV translate, turn aside, friend. You know, it's interesting because in the Hebrew, literally what this man says is, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. That's what it literally says. He calls this man Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Whatever, whatever your name is. You know, sometimes when I forget someone's name, I'm terrible with names, by the way. If you're new, I'm terrible with names. I don't remember your name. And so sometimes when I talk to you, I'll be saying, saying, hey, what's going on? Guy, what's going on, man? What's going on, friend? <laughs> I try to think of a word that's not your actual name. And uh, is this what Boaz is doing? Is he saying, hey, what's going on, Mr. So-and-so? And the answer is probably, he probably knows his name because he's a relative. Remember, he's a nearer redeemer. Probably knows his name. Why does he call him Mr. So-and-so then? One explanation, which I think is best, is that the writer of Ruth redacts his name. He actually calls him by his name, but the author of Ruth redacts it, uh, strikes it from the record. Why? Well, you know, in the Bible, names are really important. 
Names are your past, your present, and your future. That's why at the end of the book of Ruth, there's a series of names. First names. Proper names. Names, uh, your name is your reputation. Mr. So-and-so, has his name has been struck from the uh, record, has been redacted because he has no name. He's not important enough to be named. In fact, if he was named, it would be a shame on him and his family. That's why the uh, editor redacts his name. He's Mr. So-and-so. He's not important enough to be named. He's not a man of worth, of reputation. How do we know that? Well, we know that right after this. There's the scene rolls forward. Boaz, in front of all of these elders and witnesses, asks Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so, uh, in verse 3, Naomi has come back from Moab. She wants to sell her land. She's impoverished. Will you buy this land back for her? That's the question Boaz says in front of everybody. And Mr. So-and-so, we have to say, we have to say, is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He doesn't really realize what is happening. Uh, at first, he jumps at the offer. He says, yes, I will. I will buy back that land. Why does he say that? Well, number one, uh, not real. he doesn't realize Ruth is in the picture. If Ruth is not in the picture, this would actually be a great deal for him. Because he could buy Naomi's land from her, buy it back, purchase it. And when Naomi dies, that land will go back to him. This is a great investment for him. He can buy back Naomi's land, and when she dies... He can get it back because Naomi doesn't have any heirs. And he'll probably make money on it. So when he's given the opportunity to get land, it's a great investment. He says, yeah, I'll definitely do that. Boaz jumps in again. Boaz says, let me clarify, Mr. So-and-so. When you buy that land, actually, Ruth, the Moabite, this foreigner, actually comes with the land. And, well, that changes the whole game. Because the idea now is that if he bought back the land, if Ruth was included in it, it would no longer be a great deal. He'd have to provide for both Ruth and Naomi, their living, their sustenance. He'd have to provide an heir for Ruth. And when that heir got to the the right age, that land would actually not belong to him. It would belong to the heir. This would be a horrible investment. In fact, Mr. So-and-so declines. He says, I can't do it. It might bankrupt me. It might bankrupt me. I cannot do it, Boaz. You go ahead if that's what you want to do. Uh, I love this comment from a Jewish scholar. Her name is Cynthia Ozick. She says this, Mr. So-and-so avoids risk, the unexpected, the lightning move into imagination. He thinks of what he has, not of what he might do. He is perfectly conventional and wants to stick with what is familiar. Then let him go in peace. He's too ordinary to be the husband of Ruth. This thing always acts as this, this guy is an every man. He's ordinary. He's looking after his own self-interest. He's too ordinary for Ruth. Ruth is this woman of God. She, Ruth is this gem. Ruth is this woman of great virtue. Ruth is, by the way, the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, Proverbs comes, Proverbs, in the last chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, the woman of virtue, it comes right before Ruth. In the Hebrew mind, Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. She is this woman of great virtue. Mr. So-and-so, he's not worthy enough for Ruth. Uh, she needs a man who's going to lay it down, down his life for her. And that's Boaz. 
when Mr. So-and-so declines, Boaz steps forward. He says, I will redeem Naomi and Ruth. Boaz says, I will lay my life down on the line for them. I will go broke for Ruth. I don't care what it costs me. I will sacrificially redeem. Uh, The idea of a redeemer is a redeemer. uh, Ruth and Naomi had lost everything. Their redeemer will restore it. They had gone broke. This redeemer, Boaz, will make them whole again. You know, when you think about the big storyline of the Bible is all about this idea of a redeemer. The big storyline of the Bible, this is it. The whole idea of the Bible is that all of us were made for God. We're made for God to walk with God, to reflect his beauty and his glory. But we had walked away from the creator of life. We had walked away from the one who loves us. We had walked away from the center. And because the center is gone, everything crumbles. Everything crumbles. And the world that we live in is so broken up because of that. We live in a world of brokenness, division, anger, hostility. There's a deep emptiness that all of us experience in life because of it. And what is the solution to that? And in the the whole Old Testament, the idea is that there needs to be a redeemer. In Job 19, Job is is really this, this walk through this idea of why is there so much evil in this world? You know, the problem of suffering, like, it's so apparent to all of us. Why is that, God? We blame God. We think about that. At the end of Job, Job comes to this idea, this conclusion, this epiphany. He says this in Job 19, verse 25. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Uh, Job says, ultimately, I know that there is somebody, a Redeemer. I'm so broken up. But I know a Redeemer will come to make it right. I know that he will stand literally on this earth. And the idea of Boaz and uh, Job's prophecy is that there is an ultimate Redeemer who is ultimately Jesus. The book of Ruth points us to Jesus as the ultimate Redeemer who has restored, who will restore everything that is lost. Who will make us right, who will make us whole. No matter how lost you feel, no matter how deep, you, how far away you feel from God, the story of the Bible is there is a Redeemer who can make you whole. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the positivity culture, which is about good vibes, about positivity, of keeping it 100. And the downside of positivity culture of having your best life, living your best life, the downside of that, it often limits, it calls people toxic. They're toxic people, toxic situations that you've got you to gotta distance yourself from. Maybe in some circumstances, you've got to cut yourself off from toxic people and circumstances. The idea of the cross is actually the total opposite of that. The idea of the cross is Jesus took all the toxicity upon himself. He did not distance himself from it. He took the toxic waste of our sin, of our rebellion. You know, Jesus was crucified outside the city. That's where the garbage was. And he took all of that on himself. Why? To redeem us. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The story of redemption is that Jesus Christ has come to redeem us at grace cost himself. He takes the curse on him. Why? To set us free. To liberate us. I love to say that Jesus came to uh, bring heaven down and kick hell out. That's what Jesus came to do. 
He's come to bring heaven down and kick all of that hell out. And he's making everything new. He is our redeemer. You know, every time we struggle with anxiety uh, and we're worried, uh, we're forgetting about this idea. We have a redeemer. The redemption of Jesus is already and not yet. It's here. We're still waiting for it. It's still being worked out. But that's the key. That's the number one thing that brings us hope. We have a redeemer. Secondly, this redeemer, what he does. Secondly, he, he works good out of evil. It's the story of Ruth. God is a redeemer who redeems us. And specifically, the, one of the ways he does that is by turning working good out of evil the beginning of ruth is naomi's loss she's lost her husband she lost her two sons she feels empty uh she's bitter she's angry at god but what does god do for naomi well he loves naomi now we talked about this hebrew word called hesed which means loyalty and love god loves naomi what does god do for naomi she uh he does not punish her for being angry at her no what does God do? God gives uh, Naomi Ruth. Ruth is, uh, is a blessing to Naomi. We talked about that in the very early chapter. Naomi is, uh, Ruth gives Naomi space to heal, serves her, loves her. Says the most important thing to someone uh, that can heal someone who is struggling. This is the thing that Ruth says to Naomi, which changes her life. She says to Naomi, Naomi... I'm with you till I die. Where, wherever you go, I'm going to go. You know, I know you're depressed and angry. I'm going to go there with you. I'm not going to leave your side. I don't care how you struggle. I don't care where you go. I am with you 100. Doesn't matter. Do a struggling person who is depressed and anxious, that's life to them. Ruth was life to Naomi. God sends Naomi Ruth, a person. Secondly, God sends both of them, Boaz. Boaz the exemplifies Hesed. He's the redeemer. And because of Boaz, they don't have to worry about food or shelter again. They're going to be provided for. But finally, after Boaz marries Ruth, Ruth has a child. At the end of chapter 4, Ruth visits Naomi and places the baby on her lap. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, uh, Naomi, who had lost her husband and two child, who felt barren and empty. By the end of this story, Ruth has another child. And she has a neighborhood. In verse 14, I love this idea. In verse 14, there are all these neighborhood women that gather around Naomi. Notice in chapter 1, Naomi's alone. And we said with anxious and clinically depressed people, they often isolate themselves. They want to just be by themselves. They don't want to go out. They don't want to do anything. They want to meet people. They isolate themselves. Chapter 4, who does Naomi have? She has a crew of women, a posse, a clique, a group of women who are with her. In fact, this group of women are so strong that they name Naomi's grandson for her. Can you imagine that? They name the child for her. Who does that? Which group of women is so strongly present in your life they name your child for you? I mean, that's a crazy group of women. I mean, this neighborhood woman, they are with Naomi. They are so integrally involved in her life naomi's not alone at the end of this she has a group of strong women and what do they say to her they say some amazing things to her man they bless Naomi. they pray over her life and we said earlier that uh, the book of ruth can be exemplified and illustrated through a series of prayers everyone's praying for each other boaz is praying for ruth 
Ruth is praying for Naomi. Naomi's praying to God. At the end of this, this neighborhood, they're praying for Naomi. What do they say to her in verse uh, 15? They say to her something really powerful. One of my favorite ideas in the book of Ruth is that they say to Ruth, uh, Ruth, they say to Naomi rather, Naomi, I know you got all kinds of loss, but you know what God gave you? Uh, God gave you Naomi, and who is Naomi? Or Ruth. Who's Ruth? She says in verse 15, she's better than seven sons. Can you imagine that? They say to Naomi, God gave you Ruth. Ruth is better than seven sons. This was a society that was all about men. All about sons. Sons were the heirs, not the females. But these women say, no, Naomi, you've been given something way better than sons. Ruth is worth seven sons. What are you talking about? God has blessed you so abundantly. The message is uh, in ancient times and right now, uh, God surrounds us. And Ruth, at the end of this, is full of life. She's full of life. She's full of joy. She has a community. She has an, a, a grandson. God has brought her from emptiness to fullness. The message of Ruth is that if we hold on to God in the midst of tragedies, the light will always break in. The message of Ruth is that if we stay with God, stay with each other in the midst of the hardship and the brokenness of life, the light will break in. Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may tarry through the night. And we're going to weep throughout this life that we live. There will be moments in our life where we feel desperate and broken. But the promise of God is morning will always come. The light will break in. Joy will come. Ultimately, we see God working uh, through their life in their son, their, the heir. Uh, Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son. And as we said before, the neighborhood woman, they name him. His name is Obed. And Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. If you don't know who Jesse is, Jesse is the father of David, King David. Probably the greatest king in the whole Bible. One of the greatest men in the whole Bible. Turns out that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. You know, it's an incredible story. Ruth, at the beginning of the story, is a poor immigrant widow. And we said that she combines the lowest classes of all of Israelite society. She's poor. She's a woman. She's an immigrant. And she's a widow. That's the lowest, 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 lowest class in Israelite society. And yet, she's the great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel. You know, the last time we hear the name Ruth in the whole Bible is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. It's so the last time we hear Ruth's name. How does it occur? In Matthew 1, verse 5, it says, It's Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. It turns out that Ruth is not only the great-grandmother of, of, of King David. She's one of the great mothers that gives rise to Jesus. You know, when you read the whole genealogy of Matthew, it's incredible because there are only four women mentioned in that Matthew genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Just four women. What do these women have in common? Well, number one, they're all immigrants. None of them are native Israelites. Number two, they all have a sexual cloud over them. Uh, Rahab was literally a prostitute. Tamar acted like a prostitute. They are all, they all have checkered pasts. And yet, what is the message? Is that, the, the message is that 
through these four women, Jesus comes into the world. Through all these people with broken histories and pasts, God can redeem and use and bless. God can turn our worst things into his best things. He can take someone who's broken and poor, who's been through such tragedies, and he can redeem them and use them. Why? As a trophy of his grace. The trophy of his grace. The the idea that God can use anybody. That no one is so far away that they can't be redeemed. God can turn your worst things into your best things. Think for a moment about the worst things in your life. The worst tragedies. The worst mistakes. The worst situations you have in your life. And imagine that those worst things are transformed into your best things. How much joy would you have in your life if you knew that? And that's the promise of God. Your life right now, right this moment, is God's best for your life. Sometimes I feel like when I mess up, when I do things wrong, I'm in plan, God's plan B or plan C or plan D for my life. No, but right now is your plan, God's plan A. This is right exactly, no matter how difficult your life is, right where God wants you. Uh, everything in your life is orchestrated by a sovereign God who loves you. And will redeem and use every hurt, every failure, every tragedy in your life. And here's the final reason for hope. God is a redeemer. He's given us costly redemption. He turns evil into good. But the final reason for hope is love is love always wins. And we said throughout the series that the key to the series that we've been talking about is the Hebrew word hesed. And we said it combines two ideas, loyalty and love. It's one-way love. It's one, it's unconditional. It's love without an exit strategy. It's love that is faithful. It's a love that will never cease. We saw uh, different kinds of love throughout this series. We saw the loyal love of Ruth, and I like to see that as a family love. A love of a father for a son, a mother for his son. A love that is never-ending. A love that is through thick and thin. A love of a family. We saw the love of an immigrant. That's Boaz's first love for Ruth and Naomi. That we are to love the immigrant, the outsider, the outcast. That's how God loves us. Jesus says, whenever you love someone who is in need, uh, you're loving me. That's how committed uh, Jesus is to this idea of loving the immigrant, the outcast. And finally, we saw romantic love. And that's the end of the story. It's a wedding. Ruth and Boaz get married. It's a wedding celebration. Uh, We saw the romantic love between Boaz and Ruth. Love, and ultimately what we see, the story of Ruth is the idea that love wins. Love is the thing that will always prevail. The thing that brings Naomi back to life is love. Love of Ruth. The thing that rescues poor immigrant women is love. Love for the outcast. The thing that brings Ruth and uh, Boaz together is love. That love ultimately will prevail. Love will ultimately always win. And as God's people, we're always called to practice love. That's essentially the message of Ruth. We're called to love our family. We're called to love our spouses, no matter how difficult it is. That never a love without an exit strategy. I'm in it to the very end. Love that is faithful. Love that is patient. We're called to love immigrants. We're called to love outsiders our homeless friends. We're called to love them with all the love of Christ. 
And ultimately, when we love like Jesus calls us to love, we will always be remembered. Uh, we will always be remembered. Uh, today we pray for our teachers. And, um, and I love praying for our teachers and I love the work of teachers because I, uh, probably you're like me, you can remember your teachers. You remember your teachers. I remember my fifth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Brown. And she was one of the first people that impacted my life in terms of getting me ready for ministry, Miss Brown. I had a learning disability when I was in, well, still now probably, uh, called ADHD. And I didn't know that until a lot later in my life. And I struggled as a elementary through that, that whole stage of my life because I had a hard time just sitting down and reading for more than 10 minutes. I mean, it was really a struggle for me. And uh, I didn't do very well in school early on. And... Uh, I remember being in her class, we, she had us do these spiritual journals. I went to a Lutheran school, by the way. And she had us do it's like these spiritual journals, and I would write and write and write. And Ms. Brown was the first one who said to me, Dennis, your writing has a depth. You, there's something profound in you. You have a gift. You have to protect that gift. You have to nurture that gift. There's, some, there's a, a spiritual soul that you have. I was like, I did not know that about myself. <laughs> and that's the first time anyone ever said something like that to me. Uh, encouraged me, you know. Uh, next, uh, I just signed a contract to publish a book. <laughs> you know, and a lot of that, kind of getting at that, majoring in English, thinking of going into ministry, goes back to fifth grade. You know, a woman who, who, who saw something in me. You know, and I remember her name. I don't remember all my teachers' names, by the way. You know, you have teachers in your life, but sixth, seventh grade... To me, these teachers are like Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Like, I don't remember their name. There are a lot of people in your life, you don't remember their name. Why? They didn't love you. You know, they, they, they might have been your teacher. It might have been your boss. They might have been your coworker. But they didn't love you. They didn't invest in you. They didn't speak into your life. They didn't take time out of their schedule uh, to love on you, to pray with you. Those people in your life that don't love you, you don't remember their name. All it takes is uh, one person who in nine months loves you, and 30 years later, you remember their name. <laughs> Isn't that a remarkable thing? Let me flip it the way against you now. How many people remember your name? You know, How many people do you love so deeply that 30 years from now, they'd be like, I remember him. I remember her. I remember that teacher. I remember that coworker. Man, they loved me so much. They prayed for me. I was in a dark spot. They showed up in my life. Like you will always remember the name of someone who loves you. And this morning as we close, uh, God calls us to be people who love so deeply that people remember your name. You're not Mr. So-and-so. You're not that. You're not nameless because you love them so deeply. But ultimately what makes us people like that is that we experience the love of God. You know, the love that ultimately wins is God's love for us. God's love for us is the love that ultimately changes us. God's patient love for our sins. God's gracious act of working all things together for his good. God sending us Jesus. Uh, Ruth chapter 4 ends in a marriage, but do you know that the beginning and the end of the Bible also ends, uh, begins and ends with a marriage? Genesis 1, uh, we see the very beginning, Genesis 1 to 3, Adam and Eve, begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. Very end of the Bible, Genesis 19, there's a marriage that happens. Uh, Revelation 19, 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult 
and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The very end of uh, the Bible, Jesus is the groom, and he marries the bride, the church. God has love for us. We talked about all the different types of familial love, merciful love, romantic love. You know God loves us in every single one of those ways? Every way. With a, a love of a father to a son. A love of a generous king to impoverished, broken person. A love of a husband to a wife. Do you know God loves us in every single way that these are just echoes of the way God loves you? In Romans 8, it says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. The love of God is endless, it's bountiful, it's beautiful. We can receive it and bathe in it and live in it. And that is the love that will change your life. And because we receive that love, we are called now to live in that love. I talked about names, and I want to close with this final idea. Uh, names and being remembered and people remembering your name. And one of the uh, most reassuring things in the Bible is this idea that God knows our name. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he's talking to his disciples who are excited about the miracles they are doing. And Jesus says, well, you know, that's all great. But this is the one thing you should rejoice in. This is the one thing you should rejoice in. It's always going to be with you. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, your names are written in the book of life. You know, every city in ancient times, when you entered into it, and you were resident of it, your name was written in this book. It's the book of the city. Jesus says, ultimately in heaven, this eternal city, if you are in Christ, your name is indelibly written in this book of life. God knows your name. He will never forget it. He loves you personally and infinitely. Receive his love and live a life of love. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that you love us so lavishly. You give us this whole book of Ruth to help us to know the depths and the height and the width of your love. You love us when we're down, when out. You love us when we're bitter and angry. You love us when we are disbelieving. Uh, You love us so faithfully that you send people into our life. You give us a community called the church. You give us a savior in Jesus. Uh, You know our name and it's indelibly inked in the book of life. And Father, we know we live in a bad news world and we know that there's a lot of bad news in our own personal life. But I pray that the hope of the gospel would give us joy and peace. Pray, God, knowing this hope that you give us, help us to be instruments of your love to other people uh, who need a roof, uh, who need a community, who need a Boaz who's going to lay it all down. So I pray that you'd help us to be your people, help us to be your instruments. Help us to live, live a life of love so that we're forever remembered in people's lives. Uh, Give us grace and wisdom to love faithfully, lavishly, unconditionally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.